The following is part one of three for our New Believers class taught by Pastor Brad Beers in January of 2024. We're so glad you've decided to give this interactive class a listen and hope it causes you to grow in your relationship with Jesus. If you have any questions about the material, please feel free to email Pastor Brad at bbeers at sbctruckee.com. Now, let's tune into the class. And it's going. Okay. Well, good morning. Uh, I think I've met all of you, but uh, my name's Brad. Just call me Brad. You don't have to like the, address me as some type of formal title or anything like that. I'm not going to make you guys introduce yourselves to one another. So if you're afraid of that too, we're, don't, don't worry about it. Um, feel free to talk to one another. But the goal here is to try to get through a fair amount of material in only three weeks. Um, a couple of preliminary things. I do have a note sheet in front of you, which is not necessarily crucial, but will follow step by step what it is that I'm going to teach. I've put blanks on there pretty much just because when I was a student, I really liked getting, uh, you want a pen? Uh, there's going to be a test on that. Yes, there will be a test. There will be a test. It's actually, you need to know all this stuff to get into heaven, which is completely <laughs> false. <laughs> Completely false. The reason I know is that when Jesus was getting crucified, one guy looked over and was like, hey, remember me. And he's like, you're in. That was it. That was it. So everything else is extra stuff. Um, But I've got uh, pens over here. I do have some more sheets or I have those sheets with blanks on them. If that's not helpful to you, I will not be offended if you do not use them. If you just want to listen or take your own notes or whatever the case is. Um, But that's just there for you to be able to follow along as you fill in those blanks. Um, Last, or two other things. Um, I've also got some books over here which were written by a guy by the name of Bill Giovanetti. This guy is a pastor in Reading, a friend of Jesse Richardson's. Uh, He put together a series of very step-by-step building block books that... kind of cover the stuff that we're going to cover in this class, although we together are going to go in more detail than what's in those books. Those books are free to you. So if you are interested in anything that you see on those titles, feel free to take any or all of those books and peruse them for your own enjoyment. Um, But that being said, the goal is both of those books and our notes to try to lay down the foundation and I, I was saying to this too, yes, guys talk in the bathroom with one another too. I was in the bathroom with another guy. And we were talking about uh, this class. And I said, why I'm excited about this class is I feel like, at least in my church tradition, a lot of people basically say, all right, give your life to Christ. Here's a Bible. Go to church. And then you'll figure out the rest. And in as much as that has worked for a lot of people, God uses all kinds of things. I'm hoping that we might be able to head off some rabbit trails you might take in a relationship with God. Now, that being said, I also understand that not everybody, even in this room, may have a relationship with God at this point. Some of you might just be exploring. Some of you might be in a spot where I think I have one. I'm not really sure. Some of you are like, yeah, it started, but I don't really know what it looks like. You're all from different spots. I am going to make an assumption when I make a lot of statements that you already have a relationship with God, despite the fact that I'm not assuming that of you particularly. I'm going to share with you things that 
are true of those who have started their relationship with God through Jesus. That's the per perspective from which I'll be sharing. The last part, or last thing that I want to share with you, is that we will be um, go, or we'll be using the Bible a whole lot. Now, in week three, we will be talking. Come, come on in. Don't be afraid to, to sit, sit in those chairs. Uh, but on, in week three, we're going to talk a lot more about the Bible. Um, and, but for now, this is just what I'm going to share about the Bible because we're going to use it so much. Um, at SBC, we believe that the Bible are God's words written by man's hands. That's the simplest way to try to understand. That's why we think that this book is so significant, because it is God's words written by man's hands. So our hope is that you'll build your foundation for your knowledge about God and your relationship with him by using the Bible. And so what I want to do as we talk through each of these points is show you in the Bible where these ideas are coming from so that it's not just me saying, hey, this is something that you should believe because I think it or because it was taught to me or because the church officially believes it. But hopefully that what you can see is that it's based on what we've found in the Bible. So um, don't freak out, though, if you are brand new to the Bible, because we're going to cover a lot of passages. Don't freak out and feel like you need to turn to every single biblical passage that we cover over. I am going to try to cover uh, every single passage that we have listed out there, but I'm going to be flipping around really fast. And it can be if you're unfamiliar with this thing and you don't even know, like, when you say a book of the Bible or the New Testament or the Old Testament, if you don't know any of that stuff, it's cool. We're going to get through that stuff later. For now, if you, in, in case you don't know, uh, the Bible has 66 books in it. So when you hear me say a book of the Bible, there's 66 different books. And there's a table of contents normally at the beginning of all of your Bibles. The reference will describe to you the book of the Bible that... I'll be talking about. So you might see, uh, you might see a reference like Romans 3, colon 23. What that means is the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23. So that's what those references within scripture will actually mean when I talk about those things in case you want to go try to find them on your own at a later time. Okay. Finally, and I said this before I started recording, but I'm going to say it again while we're recording. I want you to, and as much as you are comfortable, ask questions and interact with this material. We do have a lot to cover in the block. I want to try to respect just the service time. So I might give you like a quick answer and then say, hey, let's talk afterwards. And that's not because I'm wanting to push you off. It's just to make sure that we can actually try to get through in the whole service time. And then if I get to stay here with you for an extra three hours talking about stuff, Believe me when I say I'm totally into it. That's what I want to do. That's I will spend all day long talking about this stuff. That's why uh, I love doing this because I really think that this stuff is life-changing stuff. And I'm excited that you want to know about it. Yeah. How do you get the handout? So you could email me um, at the beginning and the end of the recording. We'll have my email address. Uh, we've already done the recordings for that. So you can email me, but it's just bbeers at sbctrucky.com if you want another copy. Cool? 
All right. So that being said, I apologize. I told some of you ahead of time that uh, my my notes. I the only thing I forgot to print out were my notes for the session. So I have to look at my computer. I'm not one of these people that likes looking at a computer while I'm in front of people. So I apologize for that. But I'm not like playing games over here or anything like that. <clears throat> so first, uh, this this week we're going to be covering what has happened to you. And what we mean when I say what has happened to you, these are some of the basics, the very basics of Christian theology. And I'm not, when I, I hope that that term doesn't seem diminutive to you. I'm not saying basics because I think that you're dumb or that I need to talk down to you. It's that I don't want to assume that you know anything. And some of this stuff actually kind of builds on other ideas. And so... My goal is to try to cover as basic level material as possible, but if I say something or make a reference to something that you're unfamiliar with, then let me know, and then I can make that adaptation, because my, my hope is that you'll actually get to know the material. So the, the very basic for trying to understand what it looks like in life with Christ is you have to understand what the gospel is what the gospel is. And very simply, that first blank there, the gospel is the good news about Jesus. Gospel is an English translation of a Greek word, uh, which literally just is translated good announcement or good news. That when Jesus came on the scene, he was giving people good news. Now, the content of the gospel is what people are typically addressing when they want to know who Jesus is, what he has done, what he's doing now. So what I've done is I've made a couple of charts because what I want you to see is that it is probably easiest to understand why the information about Jesus, who he is, what he's done, and what he's doing now is so important when we realize who we are, what we've done, and what we are doing now. So these two charts are meant to contrast with one another, okay? So that first chart there that's in front of you, who we are, and this is probably one of the biggest obstacles for people to try to initially deal with, but if you look at Romans chapter 5, Verse 10, you find out, and this is the blank of the first chart, that we, in our natural state, are enemies of God. Am I in the right book here? Romans 5.10 says this, For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more having been reconciled or fixed, or that God fixed something for us, we shall be saved by his life. What Paul, the author of this book, is saying is that in our natural state, you might have heard your entire life that God loves you. And he does love you because one of the beautiful things about God is that he's even capable of loving his enemies. But as we start out in life, we don't start out as friends of God. We start out as loved enemies of God. And what Jesus was able to do is to fix that problem. More on that in a moment. Part of the reason why we're God's enemies is the second box there, what we've done. In still in the same of the book of Romans, if you were to look at chapter 1, one of the probably least friendly chapters of the Bible is Romans chapter 1 because it essentially details 
what it is that has gone wrong that we have, and here's a summary of it for the blank, for you blank filler inners, that we have rejected the knowledge of God and we've worshipped everything else. We've rejected the knowledge of God and worshipped everything else. A selection from Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. This is Paul's description of people who have not submitted their life to Jesus. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks. And so they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God, a God that cannot be destroyed, for the image in the form of corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures, etc., etc. And Paul will describe in greater detail in chapter 1 of Romans, essentially the process of what happens to mankind when they, in their natural, when they stay in that natural state as an enemy of God, rejecting knowledge of God, and instead worship everything else. So that's who we are. That's what we've done. And here's the scariest part about it. I'm not going to look at both of those passages there, but, but chapter, or sorry, the third box in the top chart, what we're doing now, as a result of being enemies of God and rejecting the knowledge of God, we really serve ourselves, but underneath serve Satan. We serve ourselves, but underneath serve Satan. This is one of the, the biggest switcheroos, the biggest tricks that has happened to humanity. And the reason why, despite the fact that God loves us, that we end up being enemies of God in our natural state is that God has an enemy. We'll talk a little bit more about this in week two. God has an enemy. We refer to him as Satan or the devil or the deceiver. He's not some red guy with horns and a pitchfork and a tail or something like that that you may have seen in different depictions. This is a guy who's diametrically opposed to God's purposes on earth. And what he has done is in his limited but still strong power figured out how to get mankind to turn away from God by turning inward, by looking at themselves, serving themselves, and living for themselves. That's all he really needs to do. It's not even that he needs to get us in our natural state to worship him. As you'll notice, the majority of people that you interact with on a day-to-day -day basis, they're not Satanists. They don't, you know, wear hooded robes and go and sacrifice goats and drink chicken blood or whatever it is that those people do when they get together. It's, it doesn't even seem that scary. But all he's really needed to do is to get us in our already enemy state where we've rejected the knowledge of God to just spend life thinking about ourselves. And if we can do that, we actually end up serving Satan's purposes instead of God's. That's who we are. That's what we've done, and that's what we are doing now if it wasn't for the good news about Jesus. That's why it's important that we know what the good news about Jesus is. So now we're into the second chart. 
Any questions about that first one? Because like I said, I know I'm going to be moving fast, but I don't mean to be like mashing on the accelerator pedal if it doesn't make sense to you, at least in the basic form right now. Now, I'm not even saying that you have to agree with what I'm saying right now. I'm perfectly comfortable if you don't agree right now. You're not at a spot where you're like, I don't think that that's the case. I'm okay with that. Uh, I'm just going to keep pointing you back to scripture, which I think serves as the foundation for the things that we believe and can come to know what are true about life. And these are things that I have learned from scripture, which is why I've given you the references. So that's who we are, what we've done, what we're doing now. Let's jump then. This is why it's good news about Jesus. Who is Jesus? Jesus is first blank in that second one, that second chart. Jesus is God in humans, in human flesh. God in human flesh. I'm not going to read these passages here, but some of this stuff may be a little bit uh, familiar to you. At least maybe you've heard this. This is why we think Jesus is such a big deal. We think Jesus is a big deal because he's more than just your average guy. He wasn't just a smart guy walking around, though he was supremely intelligent. He wasn't just a nice guy teaching other people to be nice. He was God in human flesh. And there's lots of reasons for thinking that that's the case. Um, but that's what's most significant to understand that that's, uh, uh, that's one of the most things, one of the most significant things to understand about Jesus. Because Jesus was God in human flesh, we'll talk about what he did which was important, but before we even get there, we want to also recognize the second blank in this box. Because he is supremely intelligent as God is humans in human flesh, he is also the world's teacher. That if we believe that God came in human flesh in the form of Jesus and walked around teaching people, interacting with people, it is not a, str not a difficult argument for me to make that if that is true, that Jesus is God in human flesh, and he did speak to people, then I personally, I want to know everything that he had to say, and I want to base my life on it. Because essentially, that then becomes the core of the smartest body of intelligence that I could access for me to understand who I am, who God is, how I should live, etc., etc. So, Jesus is God in human flesh. He is the world's teacher. And then here might be the part that you're probably the most familiar with, what Jesus has done. What Jesus has done is he has, he restores our, and then the blank is relationship with God. Remember what I told you was that God does love even his enemies and wants to have a relationship with them, but something needs to be done in order to fix our relationship with God. I am going to read these two passages here because I want you just to be familiar with such an important concept. This is probably the pivotal concept to try to understand about what Jesus has done for us, why it's such good news. The Second Corinthians chapter 5 passage says this, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. For the love of Christ, which is a title for Jesus, for the love of Christ controls us. So we have concluded this, that one, Jesus, died for all, and therefore all of us died with him. And he died for all that they should live no longer, listen carefully because it's going to sound familiar for something that you've learned, that they should live no longer for themselves, 
but for him who died and rose on their behalf. You know, did you hear that? Because from the first chat or the first chart, we said that in our natural state, who is it that we live for? We live for ourselves, right? And so when Jesus restores a relationship with God for us, he gives us a purpose of no longer living for ourselves, but living for him. Which also then, and this is a super big concept that I'm just going to leave here in the, in the chapter, but I want you to see it. Um, I keep saying chapter. In the chart, in the chart, the second blank is that he transfers us into his kingdom. He transfers us into his kingdom. One of Paul's letters is the book of Colossians. He says this in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. For he, Jesus, delivered us from the domain of darkness. Remember when I told you that when we, were, when we were serving ourselves, we actually were really serving Satan. That's the domain of darkness that he's talking about. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. What Jesus has done through his death and resurrection was restored our relationship with God and took us into the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God itself, you're going to hear me reference it over and over and over again. It, is, it was the primary topic of Jesus' message, the kingdom of God. It should be unto itself its own class. One day, when I have some opportunity, I will teach you more about the kingdom of God because I feel like Despite the fact that Jesus talked about it more than anything else, I rarely hear anybody in church talk about it. And I don't understand why. We talk about the cross a lot, which is good. It's good news. We talk about the resurrection a lot, which is good news. But Jesus spent the majority of his time talking about the kingdom. And, and that confuses me why we don't talk about it enough. So... Hopefully, when God gives me opportunity, we'll talk more about this. But essentially, for now, I'm just going to steal someone else's definition and throw it at you. It's not on your sheet. This is extra bonus material, free of charge. That everyone or everything has, has a kingdom. And the, the simplest idea to think of for a kingdom is your range of effective control. Your range of effective control. I have my own little kingdom which is, you know, like my backpack, this is my stuff. Like, you wouldn't just come up and violate my kingdom, right? Just start rummaging through my backpack thinking that it's yours. That would be odd. This is where I have a range of effective control. I have a range of effective control in my household, in my workplace. There's places where I can affect my control. The range of God's effective control. Are there any places, I know you guys are new to the faith, or you might be new to the faith, but could you think of any places where God doesn't have the ability to do whatever it is that he wants? No, no. And so there's, as a, at a basic level, the range of God's effective control is wherever it is that God is working. Now, like I said, there's a ton more to say about the kingdom. Someday we will be able to do that. For now, we must move forward. Us being transferred unto or giving ourselves to God's control is the essential component of becoming part of God's kingdom. So what is Jesus doing now? These three blanks. What is Jesus doing now? First blank. He is teaching us through the Holy Spirit. 
teaching us through the Holy Spirit. Oddly enough, in John 16, you can read that passage later, Jesus said, it's a benefit that I leave the earth for now because I'm going to leave you the Holy Spirit and he is going to teach you the stuff that you need to know because I'm going to inform him. He will be teaching my words to you. So he's teaching us through the Holy Spirit. Hi, guys. There's some chairs there if you want to do that or if you want to sit on the couch or whatever the case is. He's teaching us through the Holy Spirit. Second blank. He is walking through our lives with us. That despite the fact that Jesus is no longer physically present upon the earth, he promised his followers that I will never leave you or forsake you. That's that Matthew 28 Chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus promised that I will, not, I will be with you. But the way in which he's with us is obviously not the same type of physical way in which maybe I might be present with you, hanging out at your house or us hanging out in this room. But he still promises to be with us, walking through, us, walking through our lives with us. And finally, in Romans 8.34, what we learn is that Jesus is standing before, this, that's the third blank, standing before God the Father on our behalf. The way that Jesus restored our relationship with God was taking the penalty that we deserved. But it was important that he didn't stay dead. This is the basic gospel, gospel message. The good news of Jesus is anybody could be put to death for what they're teaching, what they're standing for. But Jesus didn't stay dead after they put him to death. Instead, a couple days later, he was alive again and started showing up to his followers. And his followers are like, I don't get this. We saw, we knew that you were dead. Now you're alive. What's going on here? And Jesus says, there's a whole lot more here. Even when they, his followers start asking him, what's going on? Jesus goes, okay, it's going to take a little bit of time for you to understand stuff. That's basically the end of the Gospels turning into to Acts. So, that being said, now that you are aware kind of what the Gospel is, what you'll hear a lot of the times people talking about then is as a result of the Gospel that you get, and then the term that you hear a lot is you get saved. You'll hear people ask questions like, are you saved when did you get saved? You'll hear people say things like, Jesus saved me. It can sometimes even be a little bit confusing just because of the way that we use the term saved. Okay? I realized that I didn't stop at the end of that chart. Did everybody kind of understand the basics of that material? Yeah? Don't be afraid to ask questions if you're like, I don't know what's happening here. You guys, did you get some sheets and pens? Good to go? Okay. Everything you need. Okay. Perfect. Okay, so then that being said, I say that phrase a lot now. That being said, I need to stop that. Now that I've said that, you're going to notice it every time that I say it. So just point at me. So I don't want to just start wasting words. What does it mean to be saved? Once we understand who we are apart from Jesus, we see the need for Jesus to fix our problem. Jesus saves us in the past, present, and future. That's the blank there. Jesus saves us in the past, present, and future. So, the breakdown of the next three blanks, and maybe we'll just fill them out right now and then kind of go back and talk about them. And for the rest of the sheet, 
uh, I don't have any other charts. So for the rest of the sheet, it's basically just going to be passages of scripture. And depending upon how fast we go through, maybe we will look at them all, maybe we won't. So there's just spot there to kind of jot down some key components of the ideas of those passages of scripture. But those three blanks, the first one is you who accepted Jesus, you were saved. You were saved. The second one is you are being saved. You are being saved. And then the third one is you will be saved. So as you can see, that shouldn't be super tricky from beyond the concept of Jesus saves us in the past, the present, and the future. Okay? Here's what I mean by this. So look at the first blank. There is a point, if you gave your life to Christ, there is a point in which you were saved. There was a specific point in which you expressed your faith to God. And at that point, Jesus' death and resurrection became a replacement for your sins. That's what we've just been talking about with the chart. That you had a point, if you gave your life to Christ, in which God fixed your problem for you. Through Jesus, he fixed your problem of sin, fixed the problem of the punishment for sin, and restored a relationship with you. That's what those passages talk about. Like, for instance, and we'll spend less time on this one because this is kind of review from what we just talked about. Romans 5, 6 through 9 talks about how we, in and of ourselves, are helpless. That we are helpless, but God makes a way. That's probably, to just be honest and step out of teacher mode and into like just person to person mode that's honestly I think one of the hardest things for people to come to terms with I think generally speaking if you talk to people they think that they're in a pretty good spot as long as they do generally the right things and generally avoid doing the wrong things but as you'll notice as we took as we did those charts it wasn't about what you could do right it was about the fact that you, when you started out this life, because of sin already being a part of who you are, you were already an enemy of God. Not because of what you had done, that was just how you started life. Even these precious little babies start out as enemies of God. Then when you raise them as young children, you realize, I didn't teach them to be evil. They just are evil. And only parents may, might be smiling about that. But they, they maybe, I know that that's not popular to talk about, but I never had to teach my sons how to say no or mine. That was natural for them, right? That's, that's just inherent to their ability. And now that doesn't mean that God doesn't love them because he loved us even when we were his enemies anyway. And we love our kids just when they're little disasters, just the same type of way. But we are helpless in and of ourselves to save or to fix our problem of being God's enemy because of our natural dispositions. <clears throat> but as a result, we were saying, I got to show you at least this passage, uh, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. This is one of the most famous passages of Scripture. I'm just going to read it, okay? Ephesians 2, 4 through 7 says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, another word for sin or our problem, 
He made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, and he seated us with him in the heavenly places. Remember, we were transferred into his kingdom in Christ Jesus, in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through your faith. And this didn't happen because of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. So there is a point when we gave ourselves to Christ. Interestingly enough, even though it may have felt like you were making a decision for Christ, God had already made a decision for you at the outset and had been coming after you, something that Jesus said this morning. And there was that moment in which we were saved. But that's only one aspect of our salvation. There's two more. You are being saved. Here's what I mean by this. Jesus is now restoring what you were truly meant to be by saving you from all the ways your sin leads you astray. Let me say that again. Jesus is now restoring what you were truly meant to be by saving you from all the ways your sin was leading you astray. We talked about the reality that in and of our natural selves, we were enemies of God. And it wasn't necessarily because we had done bad things against God. It was because of who we were that we did bad things. Did you hear that subtle difference? It's an important difference. We weren't enemies of God because we did bad things. It was because we were enemies of God and didn't have his power and his life living through us that we end up doing some of the problematic things that we do. Now, it's easy for us when we think about doing bad things or sin or problems to think about like the really big ones, right? Like murdering people or cheating on your spouse or lying to everybody or whatever the case is. But... But sin even works its way down, even into our inability to really repair the things that we naturally feel like we should be doing. Have you ever had that experience before where you're like, I kind of think that I should be doing this. But then you try for a couple of days and you realize, like, this doesn't seem to go the way that I want it to go. Like, I want to be more patient with people. Right. And then. You drive to work that very day, and you realize that didn't work very well. Maybe tomorrow, right? And, and we realize that our natural state, or in our natural state, we still need someone to save us, even from ourselves. So we are being saved by Jesus, who starts restoring us to be what we are meant to be. That's what Jesse was talking about in the first service, you were, if you were able to be there. Um, of those three passages, I mean, let me give you a quick synopsis, but we're going to look at the Titus one. John 15, 4 through 11. Uh, in John 15, Jesus uses this analogy of plants and says, essentially, that if you remain connected to Jesus, you can, you can start living in a fruitful and joyful way. If you remain connected to Jesus, you can live in a fruitful and joyful way. And he uses this uh, analogy of the vine and the vine dresser. And uh, it's almost, there's a strong possibility that Jesus was looking at a vineyard 
while he was teaching or at least looking at a depiction of a vineyard, saying that remaining connection to Jesus makes us fruitful and brings us joy. Galatians 2.20 just points out that as Christ, as we accept Christ into our lives, he now lives within us, that Christ becomes a part of who we are and becomes a part of our day-to-day existence. In Titus 2, I'll read this passage for you instead of just summarizing it. In Titus 2, verses 11 through 14, we read this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to mankind. And it instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good deeds. That when Jesus, being in the process of saving us, comes to live as part of our lives, he brings salvation, instructing us in righteousness, showing us how to have a blessed hope, purifying us, so that we would be a people who are zealous for good deeds. Genuinely speaking, those who have given their life to Christ do become a better version of themselves than they were before. It's not that you have to be good to get yourself to Jesus. That's not what I said. What I'm saying is that those who give themselves to Jesus through his power generally end up becoming a better version of themselves from doing so. Now, we won't dive into the mechanism of how all of that stuff works. That's a a whole different conversation of what does spiritual growth look like? How do we grow in Christ? How do we allow him to restore more and more of us? But he is saving us from who we naturally are. Third point, not only has Jesus saved us, Not only is Jesus saving us, we are being saved, but the third point, we also will be saved. Let me give you a really quick version of what people expected from Jesus when he came. Jesus came to a, a people group called the Jews, and the Jews were expecting an individual that they called the Messiah, but is translated into a Greek word that became Our title, like I mentioned it before, it's a title, Christ, Jesus Christ. The Christ is a title. It's a Greek transliteration of that word for Messiah. They were expecting that somebody was going to show up on the scene and essentially, if I'm giving you the super fast version of it, fix all of their problems and reestablish them as the global power. So when Jesus died and was resurrected, he turns to his disciples after a period of time of teaching them and tells them, guys... I'm going to leave. And they're like, what do you you mean that you're leaving? Like, if you're the Messiah, you're supposed to stay, and you're supposed to fix all the problems for the Jews, right? And so they come to him and go, so is now the time when you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, not yet. I'm giving you the fast and modern version of it. It says, not yet. It's not a no, not ever. It's a 
not yet. And then Jesus ascends into heaven, sends down a couple of angels to talk to the guys that like watch Jesus ascend into heaven because they're like, what in the world is happening? He sends down a couple of angels and and the angels tell those guys, the disciples, hey, Jesus is going to come back just like you saw him come up. So just like you saw him come up, you're going to see him come back down again. And when he comes down, all of the things that everybody was kind of expecting him to do to begin with, now they're actually going to find their fulfillment. That's the fast, modern translation of what it is ha- that happened at the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. So when, if you, once you know that that's the case, that's what informs our concept that one day we will be saved. There is a future aspect to our salvation. One day... When Jesus bodily returns to the earth, he is going to bring judgment. But we, who have given our life to Christ, who have aligned ourselves with Christ, will be saved from God's wrath. Remember, in our natural state, we're enemies of God. And someday, God will make a reconciliation of that dealing with all of the rebellion that we looked at in Romans chapter 1. If you look again at Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11, that's the first reference there, that one day we will be saved from God's wrath. We don't have to be afraid that God is going to come and punish us. That's one of the most exciting things about having been saved, currently being saved, and one day will be saved, is that we don't need to fear that God will punish us because Jesus already received that punishment for us. That's what that Romans 5, 9 through 11 passage is. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 13, that's the second reference there. That reference talks about a passage that the godly or those that have given themselves to Christ do not need to be afraid of the day of the Lord. And that's a a phrase that you'll bump into in scripture a lot, the day of the Lord. That's a Jewish way of describing the moment when God shows back on earth and destroys his enemies, leaving only his allies. That's just about probably the quickest way to describe it. Those who are in Christ do not need to be afraid of that. And Peter needed to teach Christians that because it was always Jews who thought that they were the ones that were on God's side and didn't need to be afraid. But instead, what Peter ends up teaching them is that those who have aligned themselves with Christ do not need to be afraid of this day of the Lord. Okay, that summarizes, I mean, as you just noticed, that was about a 30-minute version of all of the basics associated with what is the gospel, what's the good news, what do we mean when we use the term saved, we have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. And a lot of these things that we've just talked about, in full disclosure, do have fancier theological titles to them. You'll bump into big words that, that people that carry really thick Bibles will use for you. And you'll be like, man, they just know so much. All they're really doing is just using really fancy words for the basic concepts that you and I just, that we just talked about in Scripture. Go ahead. In, if you can answer this, tell me if you want to answer it later. Yeah. In, in 2 Peter 3, 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some account slackness, but is long-suffering towards us. Not willing, so he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come. So he's not willing 
that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Mm-hmm. I know from others that you have to be saved, but it sounds there, if you take it literally, that he, do, he, he is not willing to have anyone perish, but all come to repentance. Mm-hmm. And how do you justify that with, we have to be saved? I mean, I, you have to take all scripture together, right? Sure, yeah. Like you, so Standing alone, it sounds like he's going to save everybody. To repeat, yeah, to repeat your question and then throw something in that I haven't mentioned before. Um, your question is in that second Peter passage that I just mentioned there, uh, it makes reference to the reality that God doesn't want people to not be saved. He is not willing that any should perish, but instead that all would come to repentance. And how do we justify that with the fact that I have just spent 30 minutes telling you that we need to be, there are specific people that need to be in Christ in order for that to occur. Um, for the sake of expediency right now, here's the principle that, I, principle that I'll share with you now. You should know that there are different people within Christianity that have a range of interpretation or opinions about some things. So there are some that would look at a passage like that and say that when Jesus returns, he's actually going to save everyone. Some people would look at that passage and say that that's what that passage means, that he will save everyone. Other people look at that passage and say that what that passage is saying is that what God's desire is, is that everybody would be saved. He actually does love everyone, legitimately loves everyone, but that there are other theological things that come into play that prevent him from saving people, namely that he wants to endow human beings with the freedom of having a choice of being with him or not. Uh, If he overrided their freedom, saving them even if they didn't want to be saved, that would be different than giving them the ability, even though he wants for them to be saved, than giving them the ability. Now, obviously, because I'm explaining that second one a little bit more than I did the first one, you probably can see where it is that I land on that specific passage. But like I said... There are people within Christianity that disagree with me, and I'm cool with that. As long as they're willing to understand and, and, uh, and stick to how significant Jesus was as God in human flesh and that his goal was to restore all of humanity through his death and resurrection, I call that person my brother. Now, if we're going to talk about that passage of what does that passage mean and come to different places, I'm okay with that. I don't think we all have to perfectly agree on everything as long as we understand how significant it is that Jesus or what it is that Jesus did and who he was. That's all I'll say for now, and we can talk a little bit more about it afterwards. But thank you for asking a question. I appreciate that. Anything else before we leave the the topic of the gospel, salvation, anything like that? You with me? Yes, Pastor Caleb. (laughs) <laughs> you, you said uh, people generally become better versions of themselves. Yes. Um, so the question was, you said that generally people become better versions of themselves who are in Christ. Um, why did I use the word generally? And I'm going to give a quick answer that will have a bunch of stuff kind of packed into it. Um, and then I could unpack more later if this is something that you're interested in. I think that there are those who have placed themselves in Christ, but they sit there on the sidelines and wait for the day that Jesus will save them in the future. And some of that is because of what they've been theologically given. 
Some of that is because of the way that they think about life. Uh, think about life. Some of that is because of a misunderstanding of God's intentions for them. And so I think some people don't rise to the availability of what God gives them in Christ to become a better version of themselves in Christ. And I think God endows us, here's this concept again, endows us supremely with this right to freedom that I don't really even think that we deserve. I think that in and of itself is a grace that he gives us some dignity of having some choice in the matter. And I think that there are some people that don't go down that avenue in their relationship with Christ. I think that those who want to go down that avenue will end up finding themselves becoming better than they were before. Yeah, another question. Yes. What a giant question. Uh, how does, I'm going to try to reduce it to, how does the Holy Spirit's role in our life become the determining factor of whether we grow? Right? Is that a fair yeah. question? Yeah, because we do have limitations, right? Mm-hmm. How you were raised, the theology you were exposed to. Yes. Yes. Yeah. There's a lot of things that play into it in terms of the way that we grow. Um, what, I, what I'm unfortunately going to do in answer to your question is defer you. I think next week is when we're going to start talking about the, the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives now. Um, so for now, all I'll really say is that God does have the intention to restore us and to be involved in the process of saving us from who we are naturally, but he will allow us to go through processes that sometimes even expose us to wrong material because there's value in the process and the struggle instead of just perfectly applying the perfect path every single time. Um, And I think we'll talk more about that in the following two weeks. Thanks for that question. Anything else? Yeah. Mm. So do we mean, so the question is, how does one become saved? Um, And there's two ways of asking that question, because there's a question of what do I do that then differentiates me from not being saved to being saved? And then what happens, what's the actual process by which I'm saved after that? Is that a clarifying question? Yeah. So it does there have to be a public declaration. Here's what I'm going to say. And if you'd like to throw a chair at me, you absolutely can. I was raised within a church tradition that there was essentially a specific group of words that you had to say. And if you said those to God in prayer, you were saved. And it was something like, Jesus, forgive me for my sins. I accept your death for me. As if there, and now I'm getting into where I stand now, as if there's a magic group of words 
that you somehow need to say. And if you don't say them the right way, hopefully you'll bump into somebody that can teach you the right magic incantation to say. I, my position is instead that it's not specific to the words that we use. It's specific more to the understanding of who is Jesus, what has Jesus done for me in light of who I am, and am I willing to say, Jesus, I will no longer live for me. I'll do whatever it is that you want me to do. I'll live for you. I want you. Something along those lines is what I think is the beginning part of being saved, the past point in which we've been saved. I'm moving away, at least in my own understanding of what's occurring, from this idea that there needs to be a, a sinner's prayer or something like that, which I think was well-intentioned. Don't get me wrong. There's nothing wrong with it. I prayed the sinner's prayer. That was the beginning of my relationship with Jesus. I'm grateful for the sinner's prayer. But I'm now at a point where saying that there's not like a specific thing that one needs to say. It's more of a heart attitude where I recognize what it is that Jesus has done. And I'm going to trade the direction that I was going for him and whatever it is that he wants to do with it. I think that's the moment in which we essentially are saved. And I think some people, in all honesty, that happens over kind of like a, it's not even just one identifiable moment. It's not like that Thursday afternoon, three weeks ago at 3.30 p.m. You know, like, I was just reading, have you ever heard of C.S. Lewis before? I was just, he's like one of the biggest Christian authors from like the, he was writing in like the 50s and 60s, but his books are still widely read today. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and stuff like that. I was reading his autobiography, and interestingly enough, he spends, like the, let's say that the book is 250 pages or something like that. He spends 230 pages describing how he went from, I didn't think that God was real, to I think that God was real. Then, in literally, and I try not to use that word very often, in literally one sentence, he says, I got into a carriage, and when I got out, I realized I wanted to follow Jesus. That was it. And he doesn't describe any type of description. This is a guy that like has been used by God for tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people to turn their lives over to Christ. But he describes this moment where just suddenly something came upon him and he went, look, I'm, I'm just, I'm in. Whatever it is that you want for me, I'm in. And so that's probably a, a longer way of trying to round out for me that I personally have come from a place where I think that there's a specific prayer or things that you ought to say to more of a heart attitude of, I don't want to be your enemy anymore. I want, to, I want whatever it is that you will give me in Jesus. That's what I want. And I think that that's the point in which we can describe them, somebody as having been saved. Does that answer your question? Whether you agree with me. No, I yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Okay, great. Let's talk more because I can tell that you want to talk more and I appreciate that because we obviously still have a little bit more to our sheet and we are running out of time. This is what teachers constantly do. So it's important uh, if we realize... It, once we realize what it is to be saved, what we, what we understand about the gospel, what we need to then realize is that those who are, who are saved, they are described as in Christ. That's what that first blank is there. Uh, I'll read it as the paragraph, and then you can, 
You can follow me through. Though the Bible does not mention Jesus' followers as being called Christians, most, the most often, I'm sorry, though the Bible does mention Jesus' followers as being called Christians, that's not a common title. Instead, most often the phrase that is used for this group is those who are, quote, in Christ. You've heard it in some of the, the passages that we have read together. This is a spiritual reality. Here at the beginning, you don't have to understand everything that it means because there's a ton to this concept. But just know that if you have placed your faith in, in Jesus, if you have given your trust to Jesus, if you've turned yourself over to Jesus, then you have been placed in Christ. And as a result, there's a bunch of stuff that is true about you. And that's what the rest of the worksheet is going to end up being. We're going to go through this a little bit quickly in case some of you had actually made the plans to be out of here in the service time. And then if we've got a little bit more, feel free to, to talk more. But let's go through this. There's a bunch of stuff here. And this is actually, in my opinion, what these books are also really good for. Um, this stuff is kind of adapted or at least aligns with these two books, Secure Forever and you're richer than you think. Essentially, that's Bill's way of describing what it means to be in Christ. Feel free to take copies of those books if that's what you want. But first thing, uh, you get a new start. You get a new start. No matter what you've done, Jesus' forgiveness is enough. And placing yourself in him means you are a brand new start. One of the most famous passages of scripture is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, where Paul writes, those who are in Christ or anyone who is in Christ is a new creation, is a new creation. Paul also writes in uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24, that a new self is created in righteousness. Now, righteousness is a really big concept that I'll quickly describe to you as essentially that you are in right standing with God. It's as if you had never done anything problematic. Instead, if you are in Christ, you are given the righteousness of Christ. That's why it's a new start. It's like all of the stuff before your moment of choosing to trust Christ gets erased, and instead it is traded Christ's righteousness to you because you have been placed in Christ. That's the first, first point. Second point. This is one of my favorite points, um, that you are adopted by him. You are adopted by him. God made a unique people for himself, and they are brought into the family through Christ. Oh, no, that's point three. Sorry, that was point three. Stupid computer. <laughs> Cross it out. Uh, let's make point three, and then I'll go back to point two. Uh, point three is you are adopted by him. God made a unique people for himself, and they are brought into the family of Christ. Uh, Romans 8 uh, verses 14 and 15 says that those who are given the Holy Spirit, and like I said, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit next week, but those who are given the Holy Spirit are God's children, and we can now call him Father. We can call him Abba. Galatians 3, 26, 
Uh, I think this is actually, this is one of the verses that Jesse read as part of his message this morning, that all who are in Christ are made sons of God or children of God, that we are adopted into God's family. Go back to point two, which I had skipped over. Uh, This is an important concept, and I will say even before I give you the information to fill out the blank, that there are people within Christianity that disagree with what I'm about to share with you. Um, I feel bad for them um, because they're making, they're making it hard on themselves. They are well-intentioned. Don't get me wrong. I don't look down on them. I just feel bad for them because instead what I see in Scripture is the following, that you are safe in him. You are safe in him. You do not have to be concerned whether you can do something to fall out of God's favor. If you are in Christ, you are safe in him. If you'll think about the charts, the way that I shared them with you, I did tell you all kinds of abysmal things about who we are outside of Christ, about who we are without Christ. But never at one point did I tell you, and so you need to do the following seven things in order to get God to accept you. All I said in answer to your question was you have to turn to him and say, I'll take whatever it is that you want to give me, Jesus. I'll take it. And that's it. And so as a result, if you didn't have to do anything to earn it, you don't have, there's nothing that you can do that can get it taken away from you. Now, again, that's the position of Sierra Bible Church. That is our position. There are people who are Christians that disagree with us on this. And we would still call them brothers and sisters in Christ. But that's a fun conversation to have as a secondary level conversation to have. What I, what I do feel bad about, though, like I said before, is now you're having to... Const- if you think that there's something that you could do somehow that would make God unsave you or take you out of Christ, that seems like a very terrifying reality where now you're just like hoping that you don't make the mistake or trip over the thing that could cause you to fall out of God's love for you. I support the idea that I, that I shared with you that you are safe in Christ from at least these three passages, but I would point to more if, I were, if we were having a conversation just about that. The John 10 passage, Jesus is describing himself as a shepherd and says, none of the people can be taken from the good shepherd. If they are in his hand, no one can snatch them out of my hand, is the words that Jesus uses. That I'm so good at being a shepherd that you can't come steal my sheep from me. They belong to me. That's the John 10 passage. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18 is that it is God himself that ensures our entrance into the kingdom. And I think that that's an important concept to understand. Because if it is God who ensures our entrance into the kingdom, it's not my list of things that I accomplish or do that get me into the kingdom. God ensures that I am become part of the kingdom. That's a 2 Timothy 4 passage. And then Hebrews chapter 6 is just an interesting, uh, even within that passage, you know, in full disclosure, in that Hebrews chapter 6 passage, is another passage that people that would say that you can lose your salvation, they would jump to Hebrews chapter 6 to make that argument. So full disclosure, within that same chapter, they're supporting their point, and I'm supporting my point. But interestingly enough, 
uh, in chapter 6, verses 17 through 20, we find out that our hope is not in ourselves or what we do, but our hope is in God, and God cannot lie about him being the good shepherd, about him ensuring our entrance into the kingdom, that our hope is in God and God cannot lie. So you're safe in God if you're in Christ. All right, last two points. We're doing good. Doing good. Last two points. This is one of my favorite points too. You're going to find that I have a lot of favorite points. You do not, so this is midway of page three, you do not, If you're in Christ, you do not have to worry about your needs. You do not have to worry about your needs. This world is constantly in worry about their lives. But those who are in Christ have gained access to all that God possesses and wants to share. I would love... Uh, I think I shared this in a message to the church as a whole a couple of weeks ago. I'd love to do a series of messages just on the Sermon on the Mountain someday because essentially the core, the, the, the middle meaty section of the Sermon on the Mountain, like the, the borders are like all the stuff that we do that we think that we need to do in order to get God to like us. But the middle section is Jesus telling us that we don't have to do anything to get God to like us. In, just relax into him. If we are in him, then we don't have to worry about what goes on in this world. Uh, it culminates in Jesus saying something like, uh, who of you, uh, when your children comes and ask you for bread, would give him a rock? Or if he asks you for a fish, would give him a snake? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your Father who is in the heavens know how to give good to those who ask him? You don't have to worry about your needs. That's what that Matthew 6, 25 through 34 passage is about. That's also what that Matthew 7 through 11, I'm sorry, 7, chapter 7, verse 11, also part of the Sermon on the Mountain. Uh, That's what all of that is about. That Christ's followers can rest in God's provision that the Father will give to his children. Uh, If you were here for the Ephesians series, uh, Ephesians uh, chapter 1 verse 3, like the very first thing that Paul wants to let the Ephesian church know, you have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. If you are in Christ, Peter says it a different way. This is a, a thing not described. This is bonus passage for you. Peter describes that in Christ we've been given everything for life and godliness. That Jesus doesn't want us to have to worry about our needs. Now, I want to immediately clarify that, though I'm not going to spend a ton of time doing it, because there's a lot of people that then spin off from this and essentially say that if you follow Jesus, everything will go right for you. That's not what I said. (laughs) There are people that that will say that if you follow Jesus, then Jesus wants to make you rich. He wants to give you everything that you've ever wanted. He wants to, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't say any of those things. Instead, Jesus, when he was teaching directly within the Sermon on the Mountain, tells his followers, look, the world is all concerned about trying to take care of their needs. Let your father take care of your needs and follow me. That's what he spends his time talking about in the Sermon on the Mountain. And we can trust that our physical needs and our spiritual needs will be provided for if we are in Christ. Last, and one of the most encouraging things, because it gives you the freedom to be 
a real person, you will be continuously forgiven by him. There was not just a moment in which your sins were forgiven by God. You will be continuously forgiven by him. Just because we are in Christ doesn't necessarily mean that we start doing everything perfectly. Another way to augment the question that was asked about that we generally will become a better version of ourselves doesn't necessarily mean that the moment that somehow I then turn to Jesus and say, yes, Jesus, I will take whatever it is that you want, that suddenly everything about the way that I make decisions, everything the way that I speak, that suddenly I magically do all of those things correctly. No, you're going to make mistakes still. But the good news, one of Jesus' followers, John, wrote in his letter, which is towards the end of the New Testament, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that if we will confess our sin, confess our mistakes, if we'll tell God, God, I messed up again, he will continue to forgive us for that and cleanse us of our unrighteousness. He will continue to take us down the path of making us more right. In James chapter 5, uh, verses 15 through 16, the last passage listed on your sheet there, that those who turn to the Lord will receive regular forgiveness. We will get further forgiveness, grace upon grace. So, by way of conclusion, look at those things again, all these things. This is why Bill titles his book, You're Richer Than You Think, because in Christ, in Christ, you get a new start. You are safe in him. You're adopted by him. You don't have to worry about your needs. And you will be continuously forgiven by him. Now, most of that stuff, like I said at the outset, all of that stuff kind of focused on if you have given your life to Christ, this is stuff that has happened to you already. There's still a whole lot more to be said about what what will happen to you and what will continue to happen to you in your relationship with Christ. Next week, we'll talk about, for those of you that come back, I won't be offended if you can't be here next week or whatever the case is, but next week we'll talk about what is happening to you, where we'll talk about the Holy Spirit, which is an important part about what's going on right now. We'll talk about the process of change and growth in Christ, which if you want one of those $5 theological words, that, for, that word is referred to as sanctification. That's the process of change and growth in Christ. And then we'll talk a, a little bit about spiritual warfare, because essentially one of the key things that we learn about scripture is that life is not just what it is that we see throughout the week, that there's other stuff that's going on. And those who are in Christ need to be prepared for the realities of those things that are going on almost behind the scenes or not that what meets the eye. So with that being said, because of all of these encouraging things, I'm just going to briefly pray and give thanks to God. I'll turn off the recorder and then those of you who are afraid to ask questions while we were recording can do so. <laughs> thanks for listening to this part of the New Believers class. Again, if you have any questions about this material or anything Jesus related, Pastor Brad would love to talk with you email him at bbeers at sbctrucky.com. Hopefully, we'll see you at our next gathering. Until then, keep seeking after Jesus.